We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show. My name is Caleb Hegg and with me as always, Rob Van Hoff. Oh, what up, Rob? How's it going? Hi, Caleb. Uh, you know, most people can't see right now. The only people who are listening to us can only hear us. They'll have to watch later to see. Well, you're just being annoying this at new, this point. My new look. You're being annoying at this point. Rob, okay. Rob has a picture of Joel Osteen over his face. Um, okay. <laughs> what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. And what up and shalom to everybody on YouTube and listening out in Radio Land. We're happy you're with us. I am. I gotta say, I went on. I went on a diet the other day, like two days ago. I haven't eaten any sugar, any processed white sugar in two days. I feel awful. It's like location. My wife said that I'm detoxing. No, you just need to go get a couple. I don't know, like a couple cubes of sugar out of your mom's cupboard. And yes, just eat it. Just go just for eat it. The sugar. Caleb. I think I'm getting you'll feel, sick. You'll feel better. I she uh, my wife says I'm I'm not. She says you're just detoxing. I feel like I'm definitely getting sick, but who knows? Let's detox, man. Uh, you got any snow over there? Trust trust the process. Trust the process. You know, you know what? You know what? <laughs> Our snow is melting. It's like almost gone. So I just I wish we would get snow. What is exposing is all the cuz we had two trees that fell down and got all cut up. Yeah. And, and then it uh and then it snowed, so I wasn't able to get rid of it. Now I see the work I have to do again. I, I liked it when it was covered with snow because then I couldn't see it. The work I, I had to do. I love the <laughs> snow. I wish it would snow over here, but we're not. We're not as fortunate. Okay. Uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TourResource.com. Go to TourResource.com to find all sorts of free articles, videos, all sorts of different audio lectures, Tour Resource Radio. You know, we're all connected. We're all one entity. And, of course, at our programming desk, Gary Springer, as always, and in the – well, actually, I don't see him in the chat room. I think uh, I think Mark is uh, is slacking today. Uh, he's not, though, because the chat room is up and our, our websites are working just fine, which means that Mark uh, at Mark – what is it? Is it Mark's Web Design is his new title, his new uh, – yeah, anyway, he does all of our web stuff, and we're, we're grateful for for him and the work that he does. Okay, with all of that out of the way, um, you know, we have so much to cover here. And I got to say, last week we did The Greater Exodus, and our chat room is very, very uh, – <laughs> there's not a lot of people in the chat room today. And maybe and Rob, before we came on, on the air, was saying maybe we scared everybody away with our Greater Exodus talk. 
The Lord does amazing things, though, because I got to say, last week, for preparation for last week's show, I, wa- I watched maybe four hours of, of nonstop Monty Judah lectures. Oh, uh, that's that's what why you're detoxing. That's why you're <laughs> sick. Right? Um, it, it was bad. Uh, yeah, it was it was really bad. But this week, I, I have prepared, I don't think I've prepared this much for a show since uh, since we did our show on the Copper Scroll Project. I studied a lot for this show, and it wasn't because I had to. It was fun. I really enjoyed getting ready for this week's show. It was just awesome. Anything that we, we get a chance to like read or listen to Dr. Wallace? Oh, love it. Love it. Yeah. I got clips from Wallace. I have more clips. Actually, I think today we're going to break the record for the longest audio clip we'll, we'll play on the air. Cool. Yeah. One of the things, just as a teaser... I thought it was so cool, in the, and I, you provide the link for on the show notes, how Dr. Wallace has been to these different places and met all these people. And oh, I know. Had all these, oh, I just think that's so cool. You know? He's so down to earth. Yeah. He is. If you ever meet him, he's just like, yeah. He, he seems like a guy that would, would be able to uh, watch the Hawks and put back a couple of cold brewskis at the same time. While at the same time describing his ventures into the monasteries in Egypt, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. All right. Uh, so, but before we get into all that, do we want to? Do we have uh, your your Rob's Gematria section today? Come on, Caleb. What do you think? You think I'm not prepared? I, well, you know, I, I'm sorry for doubting you. Let's 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 do it. It's Rob's Gematria. Okay, I got to stop this for a second. You okay. know, here's the thing. Here's the deal with that with that intro. <laughs> Disclaimer. I'm not positive, and maybe I shouldn't say this on the air. I'm not positive, but I think that that audio, the the music for that is copywritten. <laughs> We've been using it. And the last thing that we need is a cease and desist letter for using the Twilight Zone music. Hey, if they send us a cease and desist letter, we'll stop, but then we'll have a cease and desist letter. That's true, but then wouldn't we have to pull all of our previous episodes and remaster them that have that audio in it? I think we would. Okay, maybe we should rechange our. Um... I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to. Hey, you know, we need some. Is don't we have any listeners who are good musicians? I mean, come on, people, send us some good. <laughs> send us some good jingles. I figure out of thirty-six people that listen, we have to have at least one who's a musician who can send us a couple of good jingles. Somebody make us a new Rob's Gamatria intro. And send it to me. All right. So it's a competition. So just uh, just to really, uh, you know, and if letters don't add up, sorry. Yeah. It, let, just to just to uh, you know tempt the tempt the people to send us a, de- a cease and desist letter one more time. It's Rob's Gematria. What do you All got? right. Today, show one ten. One ten. I have four words I'd like to share. Woohoo! Okay. The first is Mossad. Mossad. Like, you know. Like Mossad? Like, yeah, like Israeli like spy agency and stuff. Yeah. Those Here's guys another. are hardcore. Nace. Noon Samic. Like a miracle. Yeah. Nace, like, Nace Gadol Hayasham. Yeah. Oh. Hanukkah. Here's another uh, a call infinitive. Lil Mod. Lil Mod. To learn. Mm-hmm. To study. Yeah. Mod. And then my favorite, because I think I'm leaning this way, Caleb, I, I'm, I'm going to adopt the Talmudic worldview. Today, I'm Ben Noach. 
Ben Noah. I'm son of Noah today. Oh, dude, this remind you just reminded. So don't don't tell me anything about Shabbat. If you're Jewish, you keep the Shabbat. For me, uh, I just won't eat any, any limbs from living animals. Okay, hang on, just like you just reminded me of something that I have to share. This uh, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Okay, so Rob sends me a. Now I didn't even read the the article. Okay, I just read this guy's post. Now. I should. I want to start out by saying I have personally messaged Gabriel on this. There is a uh, podcast called The Grafted in Perspective, which I've been on. Okay. That, by the way, this is all off the cuff. I, I was not planning on doing this, but Rob, you sparked this. I figure I have to bring it up. Okay. So um, there's this gentleman named Gabriel. He does The Grafted in Perspective podcast. And I've been on the podcast. I like his podcast. Him and I actually agree on most things. Okay. He, he made this post, and basically what he says in the post is that, uh, okay, let me start by, I'm, I'm going to read some of his posts, okay? This will give you the mood of what's going on. Let me start by saying, this is a quote from him, let me start by saying Yeshua is a rabbi, okay? Uh, what he taught and shared on earth is, in effect, oral law. Okay, now, this, uh, we hear oral law red flags might go up. I kind of agree in some ways. I always say that the apostolic, apostolic scriptures or the New Testament is is believers oral Torah, except for it was Torah. So, you know, it was part of it was part of the scriptures. So, it got written down right away. And it's uh, you know, but as the concept of oral law goes, the apostolic scriptures are basically our oral Torah. Okay, the general thrust of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, was adding to and creating fences around the written Torah text. I strongly disagree with this. Okay, and I've, by the way, I'm not just, I'm not just going off, you know, I'm not just like slamming Gabriel here. I've actually sent him now personal messages. We've talked, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of gone back and forth on some things, and, and uh, I, I think it was handled well. Uh, you know, we might not agree on everything, but, uh, you know, I really like Gabriel, so I'm not trying to come down on him too hard. Okay, so, but this is his original post. This was a very, I'm going on, this was a very rabbinic thing to do in his time. It just so happens that his teachings agreed with, and in some cases were almost verbatim with some of the oral teachings of the rabbis, which preceded him. Okay, now. now this this gets back to, was it two weeks ago? When did we have that thing? So you're like, I don't know anybody out there who thinks yeah. Mishnah came before. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, Boaz Michael and F of OZ and, and uh, James Piles was talking about how nobody believes yeah. that the oral Torah goes back. Okay. And and uh, now what Gabriel did uh, say was that I'm not necessarily saying this is this was uh, um, this was not necessarily uh, talking about his post wasn't necessarily talking about the Mishnah or the Talmud actually being extant in Yeshua's time. But he's saying the oral Torah and what maybe became the mission. Is it the rabbis that preceded him? What's our data for that? Yeah, exactly. What's his data for rabbis that preceded Yeshua? What? Oh, Babylonian Talmud. Okay, so basically I take him to task on this. We go back and forth, okay? And what's really interesting, okay, is the comments section here. Now, there's a guy named Stephen. I won't give his last name. You can go find this post if you want to and find his last name. He, he says, now I, I have gotten wind of this uh, gentleman on social media before. I've seen some of his posts. I strongly disagree with him, but I'm pretty sure that he's of the opinion that the mission of the Talmud and the Tosefta were God-breathed, or uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't say God-breathed, divinely sanctioned. Okay. So Who he said that? 
Well, I, now, he hasn't said he hasn't oh. come straight out and said this, but OK, so this is what his comment is. He says, I have never found oral law going against written law. Yeshua argued for oral law repeatedly. Now, my friend Gage, <laughs> he Let's writes, he writes it and he says, doesn't the Talmud say that Yeshua will rot in excrement? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Uh, oh, it is already. Yeah. And right. and. Uh, so I write back, I say yes. So then uh, this guy, Stephen, writes back. He says, Caleb, that is not in Talmud Babli, Yerushalmi, or in Midrash Rabbah. That's, what? He, he's wrong. That's not true. Uh, it is in there. And I say, and so I write back and I say, it is true that, that uh, the passages about Yeshua being boiled in excrement for all eternity was taken out of the Talmud when the Talmud began to be burned by the Christians for blasphemy. But I believe that the, uh, I believe the manuscripts that have it scraped off, and Dr. Instone Brewer's uh, work on this uh, are, you know, is, is quite clear, okay? And I go on, okay? So then um, <laughs> I, I write again, okay? Now, now check this quote. I say, here's one that is still in the Talmud, Mr. Uh, well, I won't use his last name, Mr. Stephen. I would assume you would consider calling Yeshua a sorcerer to be wrong here in Sanhedrin 43a. And a herald preceded him, etc. This implies only immediately before, but not previous thereto. Uh, it was taught on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged. Now, Yeshua is, a, is an acronym for, may his name be uh, blotted out, his name and his memory be blotted out. Uh, for 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and a cry, he is going forth to be stoned because he has pr- practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Okay. Um, so then Mr. Stephen writes back and says, Caleb, these things are, of course, false. Sanhedrin 43a is not referring to Yeshua of Nazareth. Scholars agree on this. <laughs> uh, what do you what do you do, man? Uh, what do you do? And then he, uh, you know, basically I say, no, that's not true. And, uh, you know, I, I give him uh, Noah Weinberg as well as in Stone Brewer. And uh, he says, Luter, Luterbach, Stock, and Klosner, et cetera, the vast majority of Jewish scholars say this wasn't Yeshua. Uh, every, every Jewish scholar I've ever talked to says that this is Yeshua. Yeah. Yeah, there are, there are references all over the Talmud. If you look at Rashi's commentary, he says this is Yeshua of Nazareth. I mean, and, and if you're going to take that, you're going to take Rambam's Mishneh Torah as a codification of Halakha. He says Yeshua was a heretic. Yeah. I mean, so who, at what point do you, does oral Torah stop for these guys? Well, and, so oral Torah and, Itzhak include, Shapira, and Itzhak Shapira takes the Zohar. Right. So is Zohar also oral Torah? Is the Shulchan Aruch oral Torah? Well, uh-huh. if you're in a rabbinic circle, yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's let's move on. Be, I, that was that was. I'm sorry. That was going down the major rabbit trail, and it was what me, we need, not okay, Rob. Just, okay, people need to discern between oral Torah, capital O, capital T, and oral tradition. Agreed. Right. I mean, there's no mono. What they want to do is create this monolithic oral Torah kind of thing. No, and there's what we have because then you'd have to say that even Christianity is oral Torah, or even that. 
every denomination has its own oral Torah. Well, what, how do we, what's the gain of that? What's the gain if we just start using this same word to describe people's doctrines and interpretive, their community's interpretation of things? You know, now everybody has their own oral Torah. Okay, so what does that gain? What the problem is, people using this word and saying rabbis, and what they want to do is they want to use the Talmud is what they mean. And they're saying, see, the stuff in the Talmud, Yeshua was, didn't say anything contrary to the existing teachings of the sages that are captured in this divinely inspired Talmud, you know, or whatever. I, I think those people are living in a dream world. No I think they're doubt. romanticizing the rabbis. That's what I think it is. Uh, okay. That's, that's, that's my take, anyway. I can't believe we already discussed this! Okay, so, let's move on to something that Rob brought to my attention. This is really good, by the way. Now, um, hang on just a second. Let me get back to my show notes real quick, because, um, now... Okay, so this is uh, this is an audio link. You can find this in your uh, in your show notes. This is by Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Michael Heiser actually works for Logos Bible Software. He uh, lives here in Washington State, in a different part of Washington than both Rob and myself live in, up north. And uh, and he's at the ETS and SBL meeting every single year when we go. I've met him. Rob has met him. My dad's had multiple conversations with him. I'm not positive. I think I might have actually had lunch with this guy at one point. Anyway, not the point. Um, so Dr. Michael Heiser is a is uh, a wonderful believer in the Lord and a great teacher. He uses Logos. We won't fault him on that. This, I think, is in the running. Uh, it's it almost won longest clip ever played on the Robin Caleb show at three minutes and 17 seconds. So it'll hold the title for a few minutes until I play another one at three minutes and 40 seconds. So uh, it'll hold the title for just a few seconds. But here's Dr. Michael Heiser talking about his, uh, his views of Middle Earth from The Lord of the Rings and scholarly and Christian world. Here you go. Believe in Christianity. I'm sorry. Hang on. What happened? Your own guilt. I'm sorry. Hang on, everybody. Okay, here we go. Let's try it again. Yeah, right. Let's try it again. Here we go. Believing Christianity actually functions and operates in three realms. There's the realm at the top. That's the, the, the scholarly realm. This is where the scholars, you know, do their thing. And most of the people in that realm, again, the scholars, do what they do only for themselves and the people in their own guild. Now, they're aware of the bottom realm, okay? They're aware of that realm, and that's the realm of the lay person, the, 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 the pastor and the normal, you know, Christian, the person in the pew. So that the top realm is aware of the lower realm, the lowest realm, because they train their pastors. They have, you know, guys in seminary, they, they send them off, and then they, they pastor churches. But most of what scholars do, they have no interest in writing directly for the people in the bottom realm. The... Okay, hang on just a sec. Now, first of all, this has been edited. I edited it down from five, five and a half minutes to three minutes. Um, so do you think that, that he says that most of the scholarly world is not writing for the lower realm? Now, I understand what he's saying, but do you actually think, I mean, when I hear, when I think of scholars writing, do you think Dr. Wallace writes or Dr. You know, N.T. Wright is only writing for scholars? I think he's, I, I think, uh, 
I think he's qualifying it. I think oh, he's okay. saying most. You know, I don't know. I mean, okay. He's just... I, okay, let, let, yeah, let's not, let's you know not get I mean? off. I, I think, but you're right. I think that... Uh, I, I understand his T, point. N.T. Wright writes, you know, he has like the New Testament for Everyone kind of series. I yeah. mean, he... And he served as... Archbishop. A, yeah. Of, well, of Canterbury. And, and as a pastor and all this kind yeah. of stuff. So he's been boots on the ground. Absolutely. So... Uh, but let if once we finish, we yeah. can go back and talk about okay. Here Dr. Heiser's picture. Normal person, right? Now, down in the in the in that realm, again, you have the pastor and the lay person. Now, that realm, the, some people in that realm, namely the pastor, they know that the top realm exists because they went to seminary or they've they've read a textbook or whatever. But most of the laity have no idea. Who's, who the real scholars are, and they're content to stay where they're at. You know, I, I go to church because I like the coffee and the person sitting next to me. You know, it's about fellowship to them, Bible, you know, most people in the, in the, in the church, Bible reading. Now, a lot of those people, though, you, you have a handful in every church, is, is what I believe, that, that get discontent. Mm. They know intuitively, or they discover somehow that there's a lot they're not being taught mm. and they get bored or they get disenchanted or disillusioned. Messianic they have moments. questions that never get answered. So they really grow suspicious, you know, of, of the, the leadership in the church. They sort of suffer through it, but they know they are not being fed. They know they're not being mm. taught. What a lot of them, since they don't know the upper realm, what happens is a lot of these people mentally, if not literally, leave the church and they go to Middle Earth, dun, okay. dun, dun. The, the Middle Realm. I like how they and did the echo. Th right there are there. some people in the Middle Realm <laughs> that are so hungry and tenacious in, in their Bible study that they become leaders in Middle Earth. I put somebody like Chuck Missler here. They, they emerge as leaders within this middle realm, the realm between the scholarly realm and between the normal church right. realm. And, and they, be, they become the leaders. They become, to the, to the people in Middle Earth, they become the scholars. When they're not really scholars, but they become the, the leaders. And, and many of them do wonderful things. And I put Missler in that category, even though I think he believes some, you know, flaky things and, and you know, wouldn't, wouldn't agree with him. But you also have Saruman's mm. in Middle <laughs> You also have people that just drift off into heresy. Michael Rood. It becomes about them. They start building Monty their own Judah. fiefdoms. Right. They start manipulating the people that drift into Middle Earth. And and there's 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 it's good and evil, you know, going on in, in, in Middle Earth. Okay. So by the way, the ding was not because you know, I the, I love that he brought Chuck Chuck Missler up. <laughs> That's oh man, what a great example. <laughs> what a perfect example he brought up. And I dinged it not because I disagreed, but actually because I just wanted people to, you know, emphasis on Chuck Missler being in that realm. Uh, and not only that, but the Saruman's, you know, come on, he's absolutely right. This picture is a perfect picture of what's going on in the in the messianic movement as a whole. You have you have these guys like, and I know we can quabble over whether or not I'm using messianic correct or not. Uh, Hebrew roots, messianic, whatever you want to call it, Hebrew or uh, Christian roots, whatever. Uh, the point is, is that you got these guys like like uh, Michael Rood. Uh, Monty Judah, right? You got these, and it's They're not mi it's, Middle Earthers, Middle Earthers, and Saramons. Those guys, Rude and Judah, Monty Judah. Those guys are Saramons. 
They're out for their own. They're, they're just trying to, you know, to pedal whatever it is they're pedaling. Awful. And I think that Jonathan Kahn is, is quickly moving over into the Saruman realm there. Uh, now, he's certainly Middle Earth. The guy is very untrained. Uh, but, you know, this is a great ex- – we're going to have to continue to use this uh, this imagery. Here's, the, here's one thing I would I, – I think it's a clever analogy that Dr. Heiser is making here. I think it's a clever picture because it, it ties in with people, people, especially Lord of the Rings fans, right? They're like, okay, I can relate. However, in, if, we, if we were to say what's the real model, the real model is Yeshua says that we need to serve one another, that really Yeshua would serve it, would flip it upside down. He's our teacher. He's the, he is at the highest level, but yet he became the servant of all. In other words, he went to the bottom level, um, and that's, that's, the imi- that's the biblical image, right? And that uh, teachers do have a huge responsibility if they're going to you know be a teacher you, you have you're going to be accountable in ways that um you should take very seriously you should have the fear of god in your heart right at the very core and um that's super important uh, so um two things before before we uh, you know go too far on this Two things. First of all, please do not start sending me emails that the Lord of the Rings is demonic and we shouldn't be talking about it on this show. If that's your opinion, that's fine. Uh, number two, I said that uh, that uh, N.T. Wright was the Bishop of Canterbury. I know that we're going to have the uh, correct police on this one. Durham. He, he was the Archbishop of Durham, not Canterbury. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, he, was the, he was the Bishop of Durham. The Archbishop of Canterbury is, is like the top dog of... The Church of England, uh, which brings us to the King James Version. Okay, here we go. So, uh, like I said, this has been one of my favorite weeks that I've had in a very long time it's, preparing for this okay, show. Okay, yeah, so h- help us out here. Right, we're not talking about King James only specifically, but it, it does peripheral touch. Like one of the links, the tares among the wheats kind of thing. Okay, one so, those- yeah, okay, so, so uh, this whole thing came about because... Now we're not going to j- launch into this uh, into the into the uh, controversy until later, but I'll tell you how this whole uh, this whole show topic came in. Somebody wrote me an email and said, "Hey, look, do you know? Uh, like, can you please comment on this and and uh, go, go at this with an open mind?" And um, they sent me these three links, and I had no clue what they were talking about. Honestly, I had no clue. Uh, they basically sent me something by Chris Pinto. Chris Pinto is uh, probably m- most well-known in Christian circles for Voice of Thunder radio. He has his own radio show. It, it, it's a half an hour long. It's just him talking. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not putting him down. It's just that's his format. And, uh, you know, I, I've disagreed with Chris on some other things. Okay, whatever. But it was called the Simonides Affair. I'd never heard of Simonides, Simonides, however you want to say it. I'd never heard of what was going on with that. And I didn't realize that Chris Pinto uh, actually was, is, uh, he owns his own uh, documentary, uh, I don't know, documentary production company. So basically he, he made this, uh, he made this huge documentary series. It's two, two documentaries, I believe. There might be three, but I think there's two. Each documentary is three hours long. The second one is called Tears. What is it? Hang on. Um, 
Oh, I got to go down to my, I'm sorry. Tears Among the Wheat, and that's in your show notes. It's a full documentary. It's three hours long. Um, okay, let's not, I'm not even going to critique, um, I'm not even going to critique his, the movie itself, okay, which I desperately want to do, but I'm not going to. Um, I feel like three hours, he, he probably could have taken the three hours and get, presented his whole entire uh, idea of what was going on. He probably could have done it in an hour. So there's a lot of extra stuff that's going on. Now, basically, uh, what what this the heart of this issue is is the the Codex Sinaiticus. Okay. Now, I felt like we needed to first talk about before we get into Simonides uh, and what that whole controversy is. We need to talk about uh, the Texas Receptus. We need to talk about. Uh, some other codices, and uh, there's other issues that need to be addressed before we even get close to Simonides. And so uh, I want to do that first. Now, I should say, Pinto, Chris Pinto, does not claim, at least not that I've found, in fact, I've, I've seen him reject the, the title of KJV only. Okay, He seems to reject the idea that he's a KJV only, which means that he... I think that he actually would would say, well, you know, whatever version you want to read, okay. But he definitely leans very KJV only. He uses the KJV. He is he's very much in that camp, even though he doesn't want the title. And we'll talk about that more. Okay. So some of the things that we need to do is we need to talk about the Texas Receptus and the uh, Eastern versus Western text. And Rob, what's going on in the chat room? Nothing. Just go. Keep at it. <laughs> Keep going at it. Good. Okay. So Texas Receptus. What is the Texas Receptus? Yeah, what are all these words? Yes. Okay. So the Texas Receptus. Actually, should we just let Dr. Daniel Wallace tell us what the Texas Receptus is? For those who don't know, Dr. Daniel Wallace is, I would say he's the foremost authority on New Testament texts in the world today. Would you agree with that, Rob? Oh, he's he's definitely up there. He's a contender. <laughs> he's a contender. He's a contender. Okay, <laughs> uh, so let's listen to what, uh, wait, that's the wrong one. Let's listen to what Dr. Wallace has to say about the Texas Receptus, okay? The majority text. What is going on? Hang on. I apologize. It's my Yeah, it's it's my external hard drives. I can hear them whirring up, which means that yeah. Okay, here we go. The majority text is it's a it really represents the majority of Byzantine manuscripts. And we need to state this very clearly. Anytime, in, if, if some of your listeners uh, read uh, Greek, they'll see in uh, New Testaments, in the uh, UBS uh, Greek New Testament, it'll say BYZ. That stands for the Byzantine Minuscules of the 9th to the 16th century. Uh, the Byzantine text, we don't have a single witness to the Byzantine text prior to the 4th century. We have a church father in the mid-4th century who seemed to use it. His name was Asterius the Heretic, uh, but uh, he probably got it from Lucian. He was a, a disciple of Lucian, and uh, uh, Lucian of Antioch. Uh, by the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th, we begin to see one or two manuscripts. Codex W, which was late 4th, early 5th century. It's a Gospels manuscript at the Smithsonian. That has sections of Byzantine text. But what's interesting is now you turn to Paul's letters 
the oldest manuscript that's Byzantine is 9th century. Are we going to trust those manuscripts to represent the original when we have P46 that goes back to 135 years within Paul, AD 200? And we have other early witnesses, several papyri. We have the major uh, majuscules, Vaticanus and, and uh, uh, Sinaiticus. Okay, so that's enough of that. Look, this clip, we've played this clip numerous times on this show. Um, this is part of the interview uh, that I did with Dr. Dana Wallace at the at the SBL a year ago. You can find it. I put the show. I put it in your show notes. It's the TR Radio link in your show notes. Anyway, so basically, what's going on here? You have what's called the Texas Receptus. They're using all these late uh, these late Byzantine texts and whatnot. And what they're saying is is that this actually represents uh, the 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 actual text of the Bible. And the the, the Texas Receptus is where. Your King James Version Bible comes from. In 1611, when the Catholic Church basically was trying to figure out how to sanction a, a English version of the Bible. And this is interesting because as we get farther into this text, basically one of Pinto uh, into this discussion, one of Pinto's claims is that it, that uh, you know the, the, the Jesuits the Jesuits and the, and the Catholic Church, the Vatican, they're responsible for bringing around these other texts. When in all, in actuality, the, the the KJV was sanctioned, was one of the sanctioned. It was the sanctioned version of the English version of the Bible by the Catholic Church. Okay, so that'll become important a little bit later. But right now, what we're talking about is is the and we've talked about the KJV. We've done an entire show on KJV only before. The King James Version Bible that, that people use within the church today is not the King James Version Bible of 1611. It's just not. There was a later version of the KJV that came out, which is the standard that's being used now. So the, those who are KJV only, they aren't even really using the KJV as it was first published. But this is beyond the point. Okay, so the KJV was, was based upon the... Texas Receptus, okay? And that is this body of, of different uh, texts. Okay, we're, ta- we're preaching here to uh, people who are well-informed, so I'm sure everybody's saying, yeah, get on with it. Okay, so those are, cons- the, the Texas Receptus is considered, the texts that make up the Texas Receptus are, is considered the Western text, okay? And then we have what are called the Eastern texts. These are texts like Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, Ephraimi, Receptus, and Codex Sinaiticus. Okay, so what's the difference? Basically what happens is you have these texts. Co- now, stop me at any point, by the way, or throw in your, t- your, your, uh, you know, your, your voice at any point, <clears throat> Rob. Okay. okay so, so we have Codex Alexandrinus, which we know a lot of the history of that. It wasn't really well looked at or anything like that up until, um, up until what, the 14th, 15th century, right? It was given well, as a, it, yeah. It, it, it was kind gi- of it was given as a gift. Go ahead. No, that's right. It it uh, uh, no, that's right. Go ahead. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> well, because we, we have different different uh, <laughs> collections of texts that are discovered at different times, right? Correct. Okay, so you have basically now. Granted, okay, you. What you have is you have, uh, in terms of the Vaticanus, now I read something on a Wikipedia page and I can't substantiate it anywhere else, so I think that, that the Wikipedia page is off. Vaticanus was, was in the Vatican. It, 
it's said that people knew about it and whatnot. However, you don't have the the text of Vaticanus coming around until the 1800s, 19th century. Okay, you don't actually have the text being extant until the 19th century. And who made the first, uh, so, and this is basically when Tischendorf comes in. Okay, so you have Constantine von Tischendorf. This guy is a, he is Indiana Jones in real life. He uh, was, and I'm not saying that I'm 100% for Tischendorf. I'm just saying the finds that he had in terms of what the scholarly world believes of his finds were amazing. Okay, Tischendorf. Uh, was from Leipzig. He's a German German guy, uh, and he did all of this when he was very young. So at the age of 28, the first, one of the first things he did was he made a translation of Codex Ephraimi Receptus. This is a text, and uh, I'll read this. It says, uh, the parchment has been recycled, originally inscribed with scriptural texts. The pages were washed, removing most of the ink, and reused for another text. And the text that was written on the recycled pages in the 12th century consisted of Greek translations of 38 treatise, treatises composed by Ephraim the Syrian, a prominent bishop of the middle uh, of the mid fourth century. Manuscripts of this sort, okay, blah blah blah. So, um, and full disclosure, that was taken from uh, from Wikipedia. However, this I've read other things on uh, on this, but this was just a small little blurb I wanted to to use. Okay. So what did uh, Tischendorf do when he was 28 years old? He went and he was the first person who could actually look at the text, figure out what was underneath it. They had done some chemical things to try to bring the text out, but people still couldn't read it. Tischendorf goes in. He has great eyesight, which he uh, attributes to his mother praying for him when she saw a blind man while she was pregnant with him. With him. Uh, he says that she prayed uh, that he would have good eyesight, and so he had better than normal eyesight, and he was able to make this uh, this translation, as it stands today, the translation that he made of this of this text, Codex Ephraimi uh, Receptus, uh, is ninety nine percent accurate. Ninety nine percent, which is unbelievable. For and he didn't have technology like we have no. today to discern. So, what if just a picture of the economics there? It's expensive to come up with writing surfaces, right, in the Middle Ages. So yes. they would take they would take text that they thought, you know what, I, it's more important, I need to copy this other thing, and they would try to recycle old texts. Yeah, old, and, and uh, writing surfaces. somebody's probably thinking, uh, you know, there's enough of the Bible around, we don't need this. <laughs> yeah, and, and we just, yeah, we don't know what yeah, who the decision process was. Okay, so that was like one of the groundbreaking things that, that uh, Tischendorf did was he, he came out with this, he published this, this translation of Ephraimi. Okay, then what he does is he goes and he gets permission to look at Codex Vaticanus. The Codex, or, I'm sorry, yeah, Vaticanus. Now, Codex Vaticanus is held in the, uh, in the Vatican, obviously, and so this is one reason that people like, uh, like Pinto believe that uh, that that uh, I'm sorry that Tischendorf was basically being coerced by the Jesuits by this point okay so why do these texts matter con compared to the Texas Receptus now this is a very interesting this is where it gets very interesting because what the difference is is that you have Vaticanus Alexandrinus and Alexandrinus Alexandrinus at this point was extant and uh, once again 
Tischendorf was one, the first person to put out a, a English uh, translation of Alexandrinus. Okay, so you have these texts, and they differ from the Texas Receptus. And they differ quite a, quite a, a bit in certain areas. Not, in, not overall, but in certain areas, they differ. And, wh- and how do they differ? Well, since they're claimed to be earlier, much earlier than the 9th and 10th century of the Byzantine text from the Texas Receptus, they're claimed to have been from the 4th and 5th century. Okay, so we're talking three to 400 here. Very old texts. And they're in, in uh, some cases, like Sinaiticus and also Vaticanus, they're almost complete Bibles. So you have the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, and you have the, uh, om- the full or almost full uh, New Testament in both of these Bibles, okay? And uh, the differences that we start to see is uh, within places like the extra ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20. Another one is John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and this is the adulterous woman, okay? And uh, what's the difference? Well, within the Eastern text, they're not there. These stories are not there. Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not in the earlier text. And John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is also not in this text. This one I didn't know until the other day. And actually, this brought me back to, now, you might remember this, Rob. Uh, this brought me back to when we were talking about, uh, who was it, O'Reilly, Bill O'Reilly and his documentary on killing Jesus. Okay. Oh, yeah. And he said uh, that uh, that the Yeshua hanging on the cross saying, uh, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they've done. He said that they didn't take that out because how would anyone know that he said that? And I slammed him for that, okay? I still, I hold by my slamming on that. Um, However, I found out the other day that Luke 23, 34 is a disputed text, right? And uh, so this is that exact passage. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they did, what they've done. Um, So this is actually one of the disputed texts as well. Now... It is in some of the earlier texts, so it's still. I mean, you read that. You read the article I sent you. What do you think about the Luke thirty four twenty three thirty four? You know, I mean, it's a good point. the The Net Bible has a good footnote on that. Oh, really? On that verse, yeah. What do they say? Um, let me see if I can find it. While you're finding that, I'll read this about. Uh, uh, well, actually, let's play a we'll play a clip. Let's play a clip. So this is Wall, uh, Doctor Daniel Wallace, once again on the adulterous woman passage, in. Uh, John uh, 7.58, is it? I'm sorry, 7.53 through 8.11. The story of the woman caught in adultery. I am sorry. Man, I should have moved all of my... Uh, Why is it doing that? I, I apologize. I should have moved all of my clips. The story of the woman caught in adultery is my favorite passage that's not in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everybody loves it. And, it, it, and, they lo- and the ancient scribes loved it so much, they kept trying to put it in different places. It, it shows up at the end of John 7, at John seven fifty three through 8, 11, in, in, in a lot of manuscripts. Most manuscripts have this, but 20% of our manuscripts do not have it anywhere. Mm. 
And that's uh, extraordinarily high, even those that are considered Byzantine. In the first eight centuries, we have, I think, only two manuscripts that even have it. Mm. It's not commented on by any church father until the uh, 12th century. Our earliest witnesses, which includes P66, P75, uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex uh, Ephraim Rescriptus, they don't have it. And and that's that takes us right through the 5th century. Then you have a couple in the 5th that, that do, but then you go on and, and the rest don't. Okay, so basically what he's saying is is that this is now we know from from the Greek and the the wording in the Greek that the uh, that this part in John is uh, certainly not the same author as who authored the book of John. So John did not author this this portion. Okay, uh, Metzger, uh, who is a very famous uh, scholar, he says codices A and C are not defe- are uh, defective in this part of John. So that's uh, Alexandrinus. And what's C? Is C the Ephraim? That's the Rescriptus one. Yeah, the That's Rescriptus, the, or Ephraim Rescriptus. Okay. I think it's 5th century. Yeah, so they're defective in this part of John, but it is highly probable that neither contain the pericope, for careful measurement discloses that there would not have been space enough on the missing leaves to include the section along with the rest of the text. In the East, uh, the passage... In other words, what, what they're saying there is, by looking at, because they're consistent how big they make the letters... You know, and they can kind of measure how many letters it would take to be, to say that statement, and they'd say, "Yeah, it, it wouldn't work out. Uh, the spacing isn't right with the extant fragments." Exactly. So it's there's a little bit of speculation there, but they're trying to say if it was here, what would the spacing demand? Did you find that passage on uh, or that? Note? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Here we go. So just back to the uh, Caleb, your comment about Luke twenty three thirty four. You know, I'm a big fan of the Net Bible. I know Dr. Wallace is, I think, involved in some degree. New Testament, yep. Uh, I don't, uh, it doesn't mean I endorse every translation. Uh, I haven't read the whole Net Bible, so I, I can't comment on its whole deal. But I like the general style, I like the footnotes, and I like that they've made it public access. See, here's I, the thing about the Net Bible for me. I'll throw my towel in on this. Uh, I, uh, I don't like the translation. In, in the Old Testament especially, you have, or the, or the Tanakh especially, you have what, would I, what I would consider is more of a paraphrase than anything else. However, that being said, although I don't like the translation, the notes are invaluable. I, ha- I always read now with either an ESV or an a- NASB and, and the Net Bible notes next to it. So I have both Bibles because the notes along with the NASB are just, I mean, oh, that's, perfect. That's the big win, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll agree on that, the Net Bible notes. Uh, but there's a note there. Now, we're not talking about all of 2334, but the first half of it. It's just that phrase, um, Yeshua said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Um, so, and this is what uh, the Net Bible note is. It says, many important manuscripts, P75, um, <clears throat> A1, and, and that's uh, Sinaiticus. So, uh, uh, Sinaiticus, um, Vaticanus, uh, and uh, several others um, lack the first, this part of the verse. Um, and it goes on to say, it, it, it does fit a major Lucan theme of forgetting, forgiving enemies. It has a parallel in Acts 7 where Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this in against them. So there, it's not that it disagrees theologically with the Luke-Acts uh, theme. Um, 
But it says uh, the lack of parallels in the other Gospels argues also for it for inclusion here. In other words, Luke does tell the Gospel in a unique way, and so it, it could be legitimate that Luke adds this. But they say, on the other hand, the fact of the parallel in Acts 7.60, that's Stephen before the Sanhedrin, may well have prompted early scribes to insert the saying into Luke's Gospel alone. Further, there is great difficulty of explaining why early and diverse witnesses lack the saying. Uh, a decision is difficult, but even those who regard the verse as inauthentic, literarily, often consider it to be authentic historically. Uh, for this reason, it is placed in the Net Bible in brackets. So, uh, anyway, I mean, this is a, we have to be honest and just say, you know what, this is a, it's just a difficulty we're confronted with. Okay, so but, but what we're really talking about here is textual criticism. And basically what I'm saying is, okay, and and Dr. White says this in in his uh in in his debate with Pinto, but the, but the point is is that um look, I want to know what the guys actually wrote. The question is is what is inspired text? If you have John saying something, okay, you have him writing something. And it goes out, and by the, by the fourth century, you have what has been canonized as scripture. Okay, by the fourth in in multiple languages too. That's that's and the church the church quote the bit like big quotation marks here. The church has basically accepted canonization of the scripture of the apostolic scriptures by this point. There was still a little bit of of uh, you know what needs to be in our Bible, what you know, as we'll see in a little bit. But for the most part, the canon was was already set and accepted by the fifth century, I would say for sure. So the question is, is then okay, the the church and uh, the people in the pews and uh, the forces that be allowed uh, certain things to be scripture. The adding of of uh, things later, then are they considered scripture? I would, I would suggest that they're not. And so what I'm saying is, is that although we might really enjoy the, the, the uh, pericope of the adulterous woman, or although we might really like these words that Yeshua says on in Luke uh, 23, 34, I know that's, that's probably the, the shakiest one for me because it is in some of the earliest texts. But the question is, even though we might like what is said, is it actually what God intended to be in the scriptures? And I would say that... And if we have all these manuscripts that certainly don't have something in it, and then you don't see it until the 9th or 10th century, there's a problem there. And that's what textual criticism is saying about these passages, like the uh, the spurious ending of Mark. Okay? So, let me get back here's to Here's the thing. Here, here's Go for it. Okay, God wants us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, right? Mm-hmm. That means we need to be intellectually engaged with our study topic. And if we're studying the, the ancient witnesses of Scripture, part of, part of the deal in this world is that we have these kinds of issues. We can't just go to a King James and say, oh, this is the official one kind of thing, because it's like, in, a, in essence, telling people to shut off your brain at that point. What we need, that's why, again, back to just plug the Net Bible notes, I think they, they do a really good job of saying, look, there's a difficulty here, and we're we can't, it's, we're not going to hide it from people. We're going to say, look, all the earliest manuscripts up to, what, the 5th century don't have it. Then from the 5th century on, uh, manuscripts start to have it. So 
do we, and, and we're just confronted with that issue. So do we want to build on it? Well, I think the net Bible note makes a good point that it's not that it's wrong theologically. In other words, whether that statement is in Luke 23 or not, Luke and Acts still show in, in the earlier manuscripts that teaching disciples to, to be loving even towards enemies, even praying for enemies, right? Uh, and then we have that. It's a clear foundational teaching of Yeshua. So, so it, yeah. So uh, what I hear you saying is, and I would totally agree with this, is that these these omissions or insertions, however you want to look at them, okay, uh, they don't affect theology. It's oral law. It's oral Torah. <laughs> oh no, no. But I mean, the po- <laughs> I, now I'm not. I, I'm saying, uh, look. Michael Rood has said that we should get rid of uh, what is it, John six three? What's the or three eight? I forget. What's the one about the anyway? Yeah. Um, you know, I am one hundred percent against trying to get rid of any word of scripture that is considered scripture. So don't hear me. Don't don't hear me saying that we can just throw out scripture willy nilly here and there. That's why I'm even hesitant to say that Luke twenty three thirty four. You know, there needs to be much more work done on my behalf to, to look at Luke 23, 34, before I would say that it's not part of Scripture. However, I think that the evidence is quite clear that Mark uh, 69 through 20 and John 7, 53 through 8, 11, I think the evidence is quite clear that this was not part of our Bibles. At best, they shouldn't be in our Bible, okay? But, uh, you know, maybe they're good stories that, you know, and I, I've I've heard um, multiple people, including Metzger, who says, "Look, by the time the fourth and fifth century came around, this was still kind of considered, even though it was being uh, put down as scripture. In many cases, people still saw it as oral law. So you could, you were able to kind of uh, add to some some of these things, and uh, you know, in their mind. And so six four, thank you, uh, John six four uh, was what Rude tried to take out. Um, anyway, but the the point is, is that you know, this was probably the story of the adulterous woman was probably circulating around in oral." tradition in some form. Maybe the real story wasn't about a woman in adultery. Maybe it was. Maybe, you know, who knows? There's all sorts of different uh, things that could have gone on here. It certainly was a famous story that people thought should be in the, 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 the gospel stories, right? And so they inserted it. It was a big enough story circulating around that they inserted it, okay? Uh, I don't think it was just for theological value. It wasn't that they were trying, you know, like there's the other one in First in John, uh, these three are one, the father, the son. Okay, that's also spurious reading. Um, you know, that that seems to be ha- have been inserted to support the Trinity doctrine. Whereas the John, uh, the John 7, 53 through 8, 11 passage, it doesn't seem like they're trying to push some form of theology, some doctrine here. It seems like what they're trying to do is insert a story that seems to clearly be attributed to Yeshua. Okay, so uh, that being said, so th- this is what this is one of the reasons that we have uh, uh, such a difference between the Texas Receptus and these Eastern texts. Okay, why then would the KJV onlyers be so opposed to these these earlier texts? Well, obviously they don't agree now with the King James Version Bible. If the King James Version Bible has the, the ending of Mark, the longer ending of Mark, if it has this passage in John, this passage in Luke, and according to the KJV only camp, this is God-breathed, 
then certainly when you have a text like Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, et cetera, et cetera, that, uh, that disagree with this and don't have these passages in it, it's a problem, right? It's certainly a problem. So the Vaticanus Codex can be easily uh, brushed away, and we'll talk about how they're, why they're going to brush this all away. But the discovery of Sinaiticus was really, really a, a groundbreaking moment for not only this debate, but in, in uh, Bible scholarship in general. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the history of Codex Sinaiticus and Mr. Tischendorf, Dr. Tischendorf, if you will. Uh, Von Tischendorf. Von Tischendorf and his discovery of this uh, codex. Now, by this point, you have uh, you have Tischendorf already giving us a translation of Ephraim uh, Recept. Recept Rescriptus. Rescriptus, it, it, thank you. It just means rewritten. Yeah, like rescriptus. Written over top of. Okay, and then you all, and uh, I believe by this point he's also, he has also uh, uh, given us a translation of Vaticanus, I believe. I think my chronology is right on this. Okay, so uh, he's looking for more manuscripts. It was his life goal to basically, and he's, at this point he's only 29 years old. He, it's his life goal to uh, find new biblical texts and old biblical texts. That's what he's really trying to do. And so where does he go? He goes to St. Catherine's. He goes to Egypt. He goes to St. Catherine's. And this is actually paid for by, uh, and this is another reason why you have, uh, I believe this was paid for by uh, the, the Catholic Church from Russia. I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't remember. Well, he made more than one trip. He did. And he, one he, of them... He had to, of course, he had to fund this, right? I mean, he had to get wealthy, um, you know, benefactors, basically. And Just one like of today. The times, yeah, one of the times he did approach the head of, well, one of them wasn't the Eastern Christian Church or Eastern Orthodox, um, because uh, people were in Russia. There was an issue of, of why should we fund this not, guy who's not an Orthodox Christian to go do this work? Yeah. Anyway, I you know I don't know all the details either, but that the lecture by Dr. Wallace that people can watch on YouTube does give a nice uh, overview of that. Okay, so so basically what happens is Tischendorf goes to this this monastery, and in this lecture that uh, Rob just referenced, Wallace gives uh, the history of the of the monastery. This monastery is the oldest occupied monastery in the world today. It dates back to the fifth century, fifth or sixth century, I believe. It's at the traditional, I'm putting quote marks around traditional, well, I shouldn't put it around traditional. It's, it, it's on the, the traditional site of Mount Sinai in Egypt. Now, this is a whole other show topic, whether or not it's actually the real Mount Sinai or not. Probably not, who knows, but it, it certainly has been uh, Constantine's mother. Tradition believes it is. Yeah, and, uh, there, there's a strong tradition, even in Muslim tradition, that maybe it learned it from Christian tradition, that this is... Mount Sinai. And Constantine's mother traveled to this mountain and proclaimed it to be the authentic mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses actually Hence was. Hence the name Sinaiticus. Yeah, exactly. Like. <laughs> so Tischendorf goes to this monastery, and he uh, he's befriending these monks, and uh, he's kind of getting to know his way around. And this is, his, you know, in his own, uh, in his own storytelling, he says that it, there, it was one night towards the end of his, his visit, and he, uh, 
he was in a room and he saw these baskets that they were using to stoke the fire. And uh, he looked in one of the baskets and lo and behold, he finds what he thinks is a ancient uh, pages from some kind of a manuscript or a codex or something. And these pages obviously are old and biblical. And so he says, what are you using these for? And according to his story, the monk says, well, we're using them to stoke the fire. And he says, please don't do that. Uh, these look like old biblical manuscripts. Please don't throw them in the fire. And uh, he asks then, he found 43 pages in this basket. Now, Dr. Wallace contends, and as do others, contend that this is actually how the monks continue to, to uh, hold their manuscripts are in these baskets. So they, do, they use these baskets not only for uh, fire material, but also just to hold their manuscripts in. Um, and so there was also a huge language barrier between Tischendorf and the monks. And so there is a strong, uh, as we will hear here in a few minutes, there is a strong push against whether or not this is actually, whether or not the monks were actually using this for fire kindling. And all... Uh, all evidence points to that they actually were not. And the reason why was because, first of all, the monks would have known that this was a biblical text. They did not burn biblical text. Second of all, uh, the parchment that is used that this that uh, Sinaiticus is on, it does not burn. Neither does the ink. Uh, it doesn't burn well at all. So the chances that they were trying to stoke a fire with something that doesn't burn, uh, unlikely. Uh, even in an old condition, it still doesn't burn. Let's listen to Dr. And they had a, a tradition of preserving. They had a Geniza. Yeah. They, they preserved, they stored away texts. They didn't destroy them. They That's right. Them, they hid them away in, in, a, in a house. In 1977, there was an earthquake up at uh, St. Catharines, and there the Geniza was found where more, uh, with tons and tons, thousands more uh, manuscripts were actually found. And so this proves that the monks, I think in my mind, this proves that the monks were not, uh, were not burning manuscripts. Uh, they, they had a very high value on manuscripts. They were not burying manuscripts. They were putting them in a uh, Geniza. Uh, and so let's listen to, I think I pulled this clip from, and are we going to, let's see here. This is number fire controversy three. This might stop again. Hang on, we'll find out. In 1960, a Russian scholar. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Before next, before our next show, I promise I'll change all of my uh, all of my source audio over to my, a different uh, hard drive. In 1960, a Russian scholar, Igor Sevchenko, while visiting St. Catharines, discovered a note pinned by Tischendorf in which he promised to recur, return Codex Sinaiticus whenever they asked for it back. If this note is authentic, it raises serious doubts about, about whether the convent really intended to give the Codex as a gift to the Tsar. Just the text of its contents were published by Sevchenko in 1964. But here's a photograph of the note. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because I want to say this. Um, so basically, as the story goes, I should tell the rest of the story first. Tischendorf takes the, he asks if he can take these 43 uh, leaves and take them with him and make a facsimile of them. Copy them off and then bring them back. Okay. Uh, and the monks say, yeah, I guess so. Uh, and they ask, they ask basically if, uh, he asks if there's more of it. They say no, okay? Or they're not willing to, to basically show him what, what's going on. 
So he takes it back to Leipzig, and those 43 leaves are still in the Leipzig Museum. Uh, and he he shows them to some other people. They say, this is old. This is, this is amazing. You know, go back and see if you can find more of it. Well, he goes back a second time. He doesn't take the 43 leaves back with him, which was a sore spot for the monks, obviously, because I think that he had promised that he was going to bring them back. He didn't bring them back. He asks and if there's uh, any more of the manuscript. They say no. Okay, so then he leaves, and this was his second journey, okay? He decides he's going to go back again, okay? And he goes back again, and he doesn't find anything until right before he leaves. Uh, a monk takes him into his room and says, look what I have, and produces the rest of the Codex. Codex Sinaiticus. Okay, he asks if he can take it to his room. He tries not to act too excited. Gets back to his room, realizes, you know, this is, this is a great find possibly one of the oldest Bibles on earth. And what does he do? He asks if he can purchase it from the monastery, to which they say absolutely not. He asks if he can take it to St. Petersburg to their sister convent and translate it there. They say absolutely not. So what he does is he leaves. He leaves empty-handed again, and he goes back to uh, the sister convent. And at this time, you have some political things going on with the, uh, the, the Russian czar, Okay, and uh, he basically says to one of the guys who's trying to get this position as czar, he says, look, if you help me get these, this codex here to St. Petersburg, this would go well for you. I will help try to pull some strings for you. And guess what? All of a sudden, the codex gets transferred to this sister abbey where then uh, Tischendorf basically arranges for this guy to get into uh, the uh, into office as the Russian czar. One thing leads to another. Then he gets kicked out. The next guy comes along. Tischendorf gets him into uh, office as uh, as the czar as well. He pulls some strings and guess what happens? All of a sudden, this codex is then given as a gift by this sister Abby to the czar who now has been given put in office as a gift, the czar in return gives a gift to St. Catherine's in Egypt. And uh, the the monks at St. Catherine's have never been too happy about how this whole thing went down. So all this to say, one of the things that uh, is in, in question here about this whole story is, did Tischendorf actually steal the manuscript from St. Catherine's? And did he make up this story about the fire and them throwing this manuscript into the fire and him saving this manuscript and so on and so forth so that he could get it out of St. Catharines and he could get it into a place where, you know, have you ever seen Indiana Jones? This belongs in a museum, right? And I think uh, what some people are arguing is, is that this is exactly what Tischendorf thought. This belongs in a museum. This this manuscript is unbelievable. It should not be in the middle of the desert in at Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's where no one can enjoy it. Plus plus the importance of the the uh, the manuscript as a textual witness, as an early text witness. So there's there's the value culturally which is like museum and then there's actual content and how that the content of the uh, gospels and you know apostolic writings interacts with other manuscript history, right? So there's I'm a not, lot of value. I'm Yeah, I'm not faulting Tischendorf. If he stole this manuscript from the monks, he probably shouldn't have done that. Right. However, okay. I'm not faulting, I'm not taking sides here one way or the other. 
Okay, whether or not the story is true or not, this if Tischendorf thought that this belonged in a museum and he did some not so uh, up and up things to get it out of St. Catherine's. Well, I, I'm not saying that he was right in doing that. However, he shame was, on him. Shame, shame on, on him. yeah, shame on him. But he but he certainly was right that it belonged in a museum. Right. Okay. Let's keep going with this Wallace clip. Written in modern Greek, and the photograph is courtesy of Father Justin. Father Justin is the current uh, librarian at St. Catherine's. And here's the translation. I, the undersigned, Constantine Tischendorf, attest that the Holy Confraternity of Mount Sinai has delivered to me as a loan, an ancient manuscript of both testaments, being the property of the aforesaid monastery and containing 346 leaves and a small fragment. These I shall take with me to St. Petersburg in order that I may collate the copy previously made by me with the original at the time of publication of the manuscript. This manuscript I promise to return, undamaged and in a good state of preservation, to the Holy Confraternity of Sinai at its earliest request. Okay, so now this has been a big, huge uh, point of contention. The monks say, hey, look, we got this, we got this letter from Tischendorf. The question is, is his letter authentic? Okay, so basically what the monks are saying, look, this guy, you know, he went, he, he made our sister monastery give us this codex. He came back, he gave us this letter saying, don't worry, it's in good hands. I'll bring it back to you, I promise. It's not, you know, I'm not stealing it. And so he gives them this letter, signs it, takes the thing, and then all of a sudden they find out it's actually being donated to the Russian czar. Right? Okay. So then the question is, and let me make sure that I got this, uh, is that letter authentic? That's the question that needs to be asked now. Is this document authentic? Did Tischendorf really write it? As we saw earlier, St. Catherine's brothers were apparently not above forging a document to save their skins. They almost surely did this with the patent of Muhammad several centuries earlier. Is it possible that now they forged Tischendorf's signature and note in an attempt to get their manuscript back? In my visit to Sinai in 2002, I asked the then librarian, Father Simeon, if he had any other written documents by Tischendorf. He thought long and hard, and then, as though a light suddenly came on, he replied, yes, he penned a note in the front of his Greek New Testament that he gave to St. Catherine's on his second visit in 1853. I had seen this New Testament in the library display case earlier on my visit, but it was a closed book. So I asked Father Simeon if I could see the note and photograph it. He brought the book to me and granted me permission, and uh, here is the photograph. There's the a text reads the press. I should say, first of all, this is now uh, our longest clip ever played on the uh, Robin Caleb show. By the way, you can find the the co a copy of this note if you subscribe to Biblical Archaeology Review. There are pictures of this note in the actual uh, magazine. I'm going to keep going with this. New Testament has been published or written as a small gift by me, the undersigned, for the Common Library of Sinai in the month of May, 1853, Constantine Tischendorf. To my knowledge, since the memo of 1859 at St. Catharines has never been published, no one has evaluated the handwriting to make sure it is uh, Tischendorf's. But we now have a standard of comparison, the note in the New Testament that Tischendorf definitely penned in 1853, 
since Father Simeon was not in the least going out of his way to prove the authenticity of the, of the signature, and since, to my knowledge, no one else had ever taken a photograph of it, any motive for forgery vanishes. So what do the do uh, two documents tell us? First of all, the Greek handwriting is almost identical between the two. But second, there are two major differences. One, Tischendorf messed up in the writing of his own name in 1853, <laughs> forgetting the new Oops. after the Omega in Constantinos, which he then corrected. And two, in his note in the New Testament, the surname is not properly introduced, with the genitive Tischendorfu coming immediately after the nominative article Ha, while in the promise of 1859, he writes more properly Ha too, and then Tischendorfu. How can these discrepancies be explained? Since the note written in 1853 is indisputably Tischendorf's, one cannot attribute the forgetting of the new to a forger. And the reason for the more correct ha-tu in 1859 is most likely due to Tischendorf's increasing comfort in composing Greek. The discrepancies, therefore, rather than suggesting that the memo promising to return the manuscript is a fake, argue that it is authentic. It fits well with the growing ease that the German scholar would have in composing Greek and further, still displays, still displays an awkwardness with the language. Again, something that a, a forger would hardly reproduce. In conclusion, there is still much to learn about Tischendorf's visits to St. Catherine's. And there are many questions left unanswered, at least for now. But what has been presented in the West for many decades, that the original Indiana Jones rescued one of the most important biblical manuscripts from destruction just in the nick of time, is almost surely a myth. And in the end, this has the salutary effect of restoring the Sinai Brotherhood to its rightful place of honor. Thank you. Okay, so Wallace, uh, now in his lecture, this was in July of 2015, basically tells us, no, this fire story, no. And I think Wallace is basically taking the, uh, the opinion, I think that he puts forth the opinion that, that, that he believes uh, that Tischendorf actually pretty much stole this document uh, in a roundabout way and got it uh, out of the St. Catharines and made up this story about it being uh, saving it from the fire so that people would would be, uh, you know, it would be easier for people to swallow. Okay, this from um, the October, uh, September, October 2015, volume 41 of Arche uh, Biblical Archaeological Review. We're going to make this into a two-part uh, uh, uh show. So uh, we're not going to actually get into Simonides today, uh, but I'm going to read this because I want to finish up this section of uh, Tischendorf and the fire story. This is a bit long in and of itself, however, I will make it somewhat quick. They say this, they say, quote, the 10-year gap between the presentation of Codex Sinaiticus and Tischendorf's receiving his reward, i.e. his title, which he reads uh, from the Russian government, was the result of a drawn-out process of negotiating a deal between successive arch archbishops and the Russian government. As noted earlier, Archbishop Cyril maintained that the Codex was only on loan for as long as he had held the office. The Russians took Codex Sinaiticus off display and put it in storage until the issue of ownership was settled. They also engaged N.P. Ignatieff, the Russian ambassador to Sublime Port, to negotiate with the monks, perhaps as a strategy to 
ingratiate himself to the monks and thereby convince them to sell slash donate Codex Sinaiticus to the Russian government, Ignatiev had used the word stolen, quote, stolen, to describe the Russian possession of Codex Sinaiticus. In order for something to be stolen, there must be a thief. And in this case, that thief would have to be Tischendorf. This is a label that has stuck to the de uh, devotedly religious scholar throughout his life and legacy. It was not until 2005 that documents from the Russian archives revealed the rest of the story and freed Tischendorf from the shackles of scholarly shame. Once again, the vacuum in the archbishop's seat presented the Russians with an opportunity. Ambassador, uh, Ambassador Ignatiev approached Archbishop Cyril's rival, Calistratus, uh, and made a deal for the most important biblical manuscript ever discovered. Several documents now in the Russian archives reveal that the monks of St. Catherine's encouraged Ignatiev to support Calistratus Calistratus for the position of archbishop, which he would, could obtain for him by using Russians, uh, Russia's influence in the Orthodox world. In exchange for giving the Codex Sinaiticus to the Tsar for a small sum of money, 9,000 rubles, and some imperial decorations, Calistratus became archbishop and the Russians became the official owners of the Codex Sinaiticus. Tischendorf was made the minor noble and on July 15, 1869, Archbishop Calistratus wrote Tischendorf a letter acknowledging the gift of the Codex to the Tsar. Tischendorf died from a stroke five years later as both the most famous and most infamous textual scholar in history. Today, little dispute is left as to, the, as to whether the donation was ever made by the monks of St. Catherine's, but there is great debate as to whether it was made voluntarily. Some still regard Tischendorf as a thief in that he initially stole the Codex Sinaiticus and encouraged the Russians to force the archbishop to give, it, uh, give in. Universal, University of Missouri-Columbia professor Joseph Hobbs claims that Tischendorf, quote, wrestled the Codex away from the monks, and many still lament that Codex Sinaiticus never made its way back to St. Catherine's. These monks have been abused by Western imperialism, they deserve our long overdue support and deep respect, laments eminent biblical scholar James Charlesworth. Okay, they go on. Basically what they say is, no, in the end, although uh, this was actually somewhat of a common practice to get these, to try to get these uh, manuscripts out of these monasteries. What they say is that, uh, is that Tischendorf basically uh, didn't do anything that he wouldn't have done anywhere else. And that he was right to do it, basically. And that uh, even though the monks weren't happy after they found out what they actually had about it, they were part of the negotiations in getting the, giving this to the czar, is basically their underlying point. And so they might not be happy that Tischendorf had a role to play in this and how he might have gotten the pages out the first time, but in all actuality, the, the, uh, the monks of St. Catherine did have something to do with giving this to the czar. Okay, so that being said... Um, you can take sides one way or the other, whether or not Tischendorf was a thief who stole this and whether or not it was right for him to get these pages out of St. Catherine's. No matter what, the point is, is that Codex Sinaiticus was taken out of St. Catherine's, given to the Russian Tsar. It now resides in, uh, in, in four different locations, as it happens. And I will give you, before we end this uh, show, I will give you a quick rundown of what Codex Sinaiticus is, and I will whet your appetite, hopefully, 
for next week's show, where we look at Simonides and the Simonides affair. Codex Sinaiticus is the oldest known codex of the Apostolic Scriptures dating to the 4th century. It is written in Koine Greek and has the complete New Testament along with the Septuagint. It also originally included the Apocrypha, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. Some basic facts of Codex Sinaiticus is that it, it, it was written in the southeastern Mediterranean. It has 740 leaves or 1,480 pages, written by three hands, possibly four, one being the most experienced in taking on the bulk of the work. Currently, the Codex is housed in several different places, 86 pages in Leipzig, Germany, 694 pages in London, portions of eight sages, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of eight pages in St. Petersburg, some or all of 36 pages in St. Catharines, still in St. Catharines. And this, this comes from the, uh, the Geniza find in 1977. Be being made up originally of 365 animal skins, this manuscript uh, script must have cost a fortune to produce. Beyond that, and there are, uh, there are some who speculate that uh, when Constantine... Uh, had uh, different codices made of the, uh, he made an edict that different codices of the, uh, of the scripture should be made. Some have speculated that this is possibly one that uh, was commissioned by Constantine. Whether or not that's true or not, there are some things that would, uh, that might say that that's not true. So uh, that's just speculation, of course. Um, it is also the largest codex that we have. Now, there is one that is uh, taller, but there is not one that is as tall and as wide as Codex Sinaiticus. It's in a four-column uh, uh, format. As you can see in your show notes, I put a picture in there for you. Okay, um, all of that said, anything you want to add to this uh, story or this, uh, this topic right now, Rob? Nope. Nope. I think, yeah, we need to definitely address the issues next week about claims for forgery and uh, efforts to undermine historical textual research and, you know, the bringing to light of, of ancient manuscripts. That's right. Chris Pinto believes that this is a 18th, uh, 19th century forgery by Simonides, and, he, uh, and he's not the only one. There are other people who believe that this is all a conspiracy from the Vatican and the Jesuits to undermine the doctrine of sola scriptura. And why in the world would the reformers reject uh, uh, Codex Vaticanus and the, uh, some of the other texts that they had extant at that time? Um, and yeah, so th those are the questions that we'll be answering and asking next week. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I have to say that this has been really a very fun, fun week for me. <laughs> I enjoy this stuff thoroughly. And uh, I, I don't know if it's just the history of it or what it is, but man, I, I really do enjoy it. So this cool. has been a fun week getting ready. Did you want? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, send us emails. Seahag at ToraResource.com or Vanhoff at ToraResource.com. And uh, I hope that the history of uh, Codex Sinaiticus and some of the things that surround it have been interesting to you as interesting as they are to me and the way that we received the holy scriptures that have been given to us and, uh, yeah, by our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. 